I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai in the UAE. This week, we're asking, is it really all doom and gloom for the global economy? NATO nation media appeared shocked when, shocked when OPEC Plus suddenly announced the slashing of oil production in stark contrast to the begging of a Biden administration that's only just had to bail out the second worst bank failure in US history. Joining me today to make sense of it all from the former financial center of the world, London, is Professor Daniel Lacalia. Chief Economist at the Spanish Wealth Management Fund, Tresis, and he's been ranked as one of the top 20 most influential economists in the world. Thank you so much, uh, Daniel, for uh, coming on. Forget uh, SVB, uh, Silicon Valley uh, Bank. What about Credit Suisse? Because NATO Nation media commentators seem desperate to say, look, this is nothing like 2008. And then we have Peter Schiff, CEO of Euro Pacific Capital, who I think you know, saying uh, this isn't going to get better. This is going to be worse than 2008. And we must remember that the uh, numbers of hundreds of thousands of excess deaths that the 2008 crisis caused when it came to uh, uh, poverty, cold, hunger, 40 million um, in the USA are going hungry tonight. Well, I think, thank you so much for, for having me. I think that uh, it's somewhere in between, to be fairly honest, to say that it's nothing like 2008 and it's going to be uh, just uh, a small piece of news that doesn't uh, transfer to a much larger risk makes no sense. But I think at the same time, that precisely because the problems of the financial sector are global and because of the excess debt that exists all over the world, when everybody's in deep trouble, then virtually no one is in deep trouble. So at the end of the day, there is a concerted effort, both from governments and central banks, to avoid a 2008-style crisis. However, the challenges, obviously, are enormous because We've had a decade of negative, negative interest rates that has obliterated the balance sheet of banks and has created an enormous bubble that goes from sovereign bonds to cryptocurrencies. And what's happening right now is the destruction of capital of so many of those investments and loans that uh, were made with a perception of uh, valuation and a perception of a risk that certainly it was uh, profoundly optimistic, no? So I think that... But if that's, uh, if that's the case, be... then... So would you sympathize with uh, former U.S. Treasury uh, uh, Nouriel Roubini saying, look, the U.S. banking sector is uh, on the verge of catastrophe? He said unrealized losses on securities amounting to $620 billion, which together with the higher interest rates point to unrealized $1.75 trillion of uh, losses. Yeah, the the U.S. banking system is, is, gone, is a goner. I wouldn't say that the U.S. banking system in its entirety, but certainly the, there's going to be more episodes like Silicon Valley Bank. But I'm more worried about the European uh, banking system because the European banking system did not get out of the 2011 crisis with a cleanup of non-performing loans, with a cleanup of the of the balance sheet. At least in the United States, you get a shock. No? In the United States, you have mark-to-market uh, on a monthly basis, on a quarterly basis of all the assets, and therefore uh, you can immediately see whether there is a big financial hole in a, in a bank or not. In the case of the European Union, you have 
not just uh, the, uh, the, 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 the challenges that were built up throughout the 2011 crisis and a decade of nominal negative rates, but on top of that, you have this uh, very challenging uh, situation with the convertible contingent bonds that can create a domino effect on the equity. So I think that uh, usually when these things start, when these crises, the banking crisis starts, we always hear the same narrative, which is that the US, it's a problem of the US banking sector and everybody else is fine. And then, as it happened in 2011, what we actually see is is that the challenges are global. So I think that it's going to be a massive uh, rebasement of the asset base that you just mentioned, and that, is going to, and that is going to appear in the bond side and the equity side, certainly. It's going obviously, to, obviously it's going central to banks, Central banks in Europe deny all that and say they learned so much in the fallout of the uh, 2008 uh, crisis and the crisis that uh, went after it. Um, do you, you said it was everywhere this situation. Arguably, mm. where I'm speaking to you from, everyone's talking about uh, a boom in entrepreneurial capitalism. Yeah. And uh, same oh, all I'm... around Southeast Asia. So it's not everywhere, is it? Isn't there a decoupled well, global economy going on here that while you're speaking to me from the old world where people are talking about imminent bank collapses uh, with uh, huge yeah. uh, unrealized debt, and over here they're opening new banks and uh, trying to start out whole new uh, innovations and uh, businesses backed often by Global South uh, governments. You've just mentioned a, a great world. I'm talking from the old world, you know, and what you're what you're actually living in Southeast Asia, what you're actually living in the Middle East is uh, is the is actually banking the way that it should be, you know, that it should be uh, done with real assets, with with uh, uh, with real prospects of growth and with opportunities and innovation, etc. Absolutely, but. The, the global financial system is fully interconnected. So if there's a, if there ripple effects can happen, huh? but you're absolutely right that this time there is a huge difference between the banking system in the United States or the Euro area relative to uh, those countries in which there's been. No, to start with, the first thing that those none of those countries have had to uh, do was create an artificial bubble through negative rates. R real rates and nominal rates were actually positive. So banks well, they have to keep up, don't they? Because they peg the currencies. They have to keep up yeah. with the money printing. <laughs> Exactly. They have to keep up with the money printing, but at least they keep up with the money printing in a sensible way, no? which is to understand that, that the price of risk has to be, has to be uh, real and has to be realistic and that valuations have to be relatively, uh, relatively comfortable so that the, the banks simply don't see a domino effect like Silicon Valley Bank saw, which, which was not a collapse because they invested in technology, but a collapse because because they had a massive uh, sovereign bond book that had to that that generate those unrealized losses that you mentioned. Albeit that there was investment from this region and Southeast Asia. I mean, I just you were talking about it being interconnected. The fact that OPEC Plus uh, reduced oil uh, uh, output. Mm. If things were really as interconnected as you suggest, they wouldn't want to be going to economic war de facto with the other side, the old world, would they? 
Are things really that interconnected anymore? Um, you pro there are differences, absolutely. The, the reason I, I think that everybody was shocked by in the in the old world, as you say, about uh, the decision to cut production from OPEC plus, um, and certainly that raises a few questions. But it is also true that the OPEC plus decision comes fundamentally from a weakening global demand picture. So, and the, and the weakening global demand picture comes from the stagnation of the US and the European economy, you know, which are huge importers of, uh, of oil and gas. So I think that the, the decision is basically a reflection of everything that we're talking about now, is that they see that on the one hand, demand growth is not as expected. Second, that they that they make taken a measure to defend the the oil price, and at the same time, they see very little in terms of negative ramifications on the producing countries. So we are seeing that 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 you know, on the one hand, everything is interconnected, but on the other hand, there are pockets of regional exposures that allow. Uh, producers in this case to take decisions uh, that are probably more driven toward uh, making the situation internally better rather than just uh, as it used to be in terms of uh, OPEC policy. OPEC's policy used to be more about what would the United States do. That is not the case anymore at all. Yeah, when arguably OPEC was a proxy. But just explain to me one thing, because obviously that was a decision with Russia, Saudi Arabia, UAE. Not sure yeah. whether it'll affect uh, China very well, because it needs energy. And also, the mm. fact OPEC Plus did this is surely a benefit to the United States, because the United States is the biggest oil exporter. Oh, it is. I never understand that, gift. the media coverage of this. Explain why, actually, the United States benefits from this Saudi production cut and the Russian production cut. Absolutely. The reason why the United States benefits from the OPEC production cut is because the United States has become the marginal provider of oil for the rest of the world when there's a reduction in production for many of the of the OPEC producers. Uh, the United States has gone uh, to produce almost uh, 11 million barrels a day, which is more than what Saudi Arabia or than Russia produced. But and the fact that the United States has become almost energy independent is an important factor that, for example, has saved the European Union in its energy crisis by bringing uh, liquefied natural gas from the United States when the tensions with Russia became more evident. So all of that is benefiting the United States. On the one hand, it's exposing... Do you believe the Nord Stream was destroyed by the Biden administration? Because certainly you've just oh, told me the motive. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't know. No, but you know who's the biggest uh, beneficiary of the Nord Stream uh, collapse? It was the, uh, the Norwegian oil company the state Norwegian oil company. That was, if you look at the earnings, that's the one. The United States didn't benefit from it. That, and I, I'm well, you were just opinion. telling me about the, the LNG, though, and the opening of LNG terminals. No, because it, had al it already had all of it sold in, in advance. So why would they... Why would they implement such a such a uh, such an action is it makes makes no sense to me. It was already sold in advance uh, in long term contracts.
Wait, so the US LNG that could go to Europe couldn't replace the LNG that would have gone through Nord Stream? Uh, no, it wouldn't. The, the United States' ability to export is uh, ample, but not unlimited. So, the, so it would not have uh, sent more LNG to the European Union unless it would have put in danger the supply of the United States itself, then that's not going to happen. You think about it, if they, if they enter into a situation in which the arbitrage between the price in the European Union and the price in the, in the United States is, uh, is ample enough in order to uh, make it more profitable to send to the European Union, the best way to do it is to enter into long-term contracts. Nobody in the oil and in Industry, as you know very well, wants spot uh, volatility. Uh, everybody wants a, as many long-term contracts as possible. And the U United States, when the Ukraine invasion happened, they entered into the, the long-term contracts that they could. More would have been virtually impossible. So if there's any beneficiary of the Nord Stream uh, collapse, it's the state-owned uh, <laughs> Norwegian company. And obviously, obviously the, the North Sea producers. Well, the Norwegian government obviously denies any involvement in the uh, eco-atrocity of, of course, the Nord Stream of course. No, I'm not even explosion. I know you're not. You haven't been. Uh, you haven't been giving a motive. People can uh, see our interview with uh, Seymour Hirsch on our uh, Rumble channel. Professor Daniel Lacaye, I'll stop you there. More from the chief economist at the Wealth Management Fund, Tresses, after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with Professor Daniel Akaya, Chief Economist at the Wealth Management Fund, Tresses. What has been the impact of sanctions on Russia from your uh, viewpoint? Because, I mean, why, why was the ruble the strongest performing currency of 2022, given that uh, the Biden administration themselves said the ruble will be rubble? Well, uh, the, the ruble is, is a very complicated currency. On the one hand, it has capital controls. So most Russian citizens simply cannot exchange rubles for US dollars or euros. So the exchange rate is relatively uh, massaged or managed by, by, the, by the central bank. Um, and I think that basically, on the other hand, there's another reason is that the, the global oil and gas market is is global and fully interconnected. So sanctions against Russia have basically meant that Russia would export a lot more to China and India, which ha which have been, as you uh, mentioned prior, the the main beneficiaries of of uh, receiving. Uh, oil and gas at a discount from from Russia. So basically, what has happened is that the Russian economy has uh, gotten into a massive trade surplus. That certainly helps. And the utilization is true that the utilization of the ruble as a currency is is virtually inexistent globally. However, it is true that the interconnection with China and with India. Has and the gold reserves. Strengthened. 
and the gold reserves, obviously. The gold reserves matter to a certain extent. Gold reserves are important. Uh, the, there is certainly the, the governor of the Russian Central Bank, um, so he's a, she's a woman, I don't remember her surname, but uh, she uh, implemented a policy of defending the reserve base of the central bank in a very non-Keynesian way, not printing money massively. So not printing money massively certainly has helped stabilize the ruble in a situation that could have been, as you said before, very, very negative. But obviously, come back to the point, our capital controls are a are a very negative thing for the Russian population uh, that want to exchange those for euros or for dollars. But on the other hand, it has strengthened the ties with China, undoubtedly, there uh, and with and with India, and those two have uh, basically offset all of the, all of the negative impact of exports to uh, to the European Union, uh, and probably by a very very large difference. No. Well, the uh, central bank uh, governor in, in Moscow, Nabilina, uh, came under attack, yeah, arguably, yeah. for leaving loads of money in uh, the United States as Russia went in to, as they saw it, defend the people of uh, Donbass, which shows the problems of decoupling, doesn't it, from the American economy. Everyone in the global south all talking about decoupling, as you know, from the US uh, currency. How difficult is it for China to uh, decouple. I understand the latest figures show the sixth uh, straight month of decline in US Treasuries, lowest since 2009, $859 billion China owns of, um, of uh, you know, frontline US debt. How careful do they be, have to be and how easy? Uh, this is straight years of decline in, in US debt buying by mm. the Chinese government. They can't just pull the rug, can they? No, absolutely not. <laughs> we have to remember. We have to remember that for China, their huge U.S. dollar reserves, which are fundamentally in U.S. debt, um, are one of the principles of the of the strength of the uh, of the central bank. It provides stability to the to the yuan. No, um, how easy is it to decouple from the U.S. dollar? It's very difficult, and the reason why it's very difficult is that. Uh, when countries like China, Russia, India, so many other countries think of decoupling, the problem is that none of them think of what makes the US dollar the world reserve currency. And that is that there is in a, in a fire, uh, it is the house with the largest number of windows and doors. It's liquidity. So the problem that one finds when you see alternatives to the US dollar, they may be uh, non-state-owned, but state fiat currencies that could be an alternative to the US dollar is that the uh, the perverse incentive of central banks and governments of implementing capital controls immediately make it impossible for that currency to be a world reserve currency. Okay, but then perhaps we should define what decoupling is, and history is seeming to move yeah. much quicker every other week. You can still have a kind of peg to the dollar while being decoupled, i.e. probably not a buyer of US uh, Treasury bills and debt, can't you? I mean, the yuan is kind of pegged to the dollar, isn't it? Yeah. 
Yeah, in a way, yes, absolutely. The yuan is the yuan is fully pegged to the U.S. dollar, and if you think about it, the the way that the PBOC, the Central Bank of China, manages the fixing of the yuan is fully aligned with what you just mentioned, which is the variability of the reserves. But until the dollar starts declining massively, whereupon the Communist Party would surely say, "No, we're not buying any more U.S. Treasury." Exactly, which which could happen, but the reason why it doesn't happen or it's not happening is because the there at the end of the day, in be it in bonds, be it in currencies, you always have to think of the the U.S. dollar versus something or the U.S. treasuries versus something. And the problem is right now that the alternative, the alternatives are not feasible uh, to to offset the, the, the kingdom of the US dollar to start with. The euro is the only world reserve currency that has re-denomination risk. So, you know, we never know, but one day a country can decide to leave the euro and, and, and the entire house of cards can collapse, no? The yuan is, uh, is a currency that has many positive things. You mentioned before the, the gold reserves, you mentioned uh, uh, the, the strength of the Chinese economy, absolutely, but it has capital controls and that definitely... Yeah, so it's not good for investment houses like yours and for financial institutions. Yeah. But as a reserve currency, it could be something for the future, obviously offering less ability to gamble and speculate on. Probably why, you you know, People like you probably don't don't like it very much. I've got to ask for your... No, no, we, no, we like it. We well, like capital it. controls. Anyway. I know you don't like capital controls, clearly. I mean, if we could just ask you your advice as to giving, given the higher oil prices, energy prices, and the risk of US economic, risk of economic collapse and European economic collapse, mm. what can Asian economies, Latin American, African, you know, China, what can they do to mitigate the risks. The World Bank is saying a decade of lost growth and saying we're all uh, doom and gloom. What, what can the rest of the world, most of the world, do to mitigate the losses? In my, in my opinion, it's, it's a very straightforward and simple answer, but it's a very complicated one to implement, which is avoid twin deficits at all costs. Hmm? What is the problem? The problem is that everybody complains now about the risk of contagion, etc. But if you, uh, from a government perspective, if a country from a government perspective decides to constantly go to massive deficits, be it on the fiscal or on the commercial front or both, then inevitably you're becoming more dependent on the US dollar I come back to the point this the it's where US dollar well, you could just something. default on the, you could default on the deficit couldn't you uh, yeah exactly but that doesn't that doesn't work that that doesn't work whatsoever default is the when a, when a sovereign state defaults it is the proof to the world that it's insolvent but it's to the it's old no world solution. isn't it it's to the old world argentina did that if you do what you are saying and uh, massively curb public spending just because you're obsessed by the deficit like the government yeah. like the national economy with some grocer's shop as mrs thatcher would say you're in trouble, aren't you? Because you'll end up in a revolution, a political revolution, as you shut well, close down the uh, you, public you services. Yeah. You just mentioned Argentina. Argentina is a country with 100% inflation. Hmm? 
So yeah, it's very. It seems it seems like a great idea to enter into massive debt and then not pay it. Not pay it. It's great. No, it looks like a good idea until you know what that means. What it basically means, ultimately, what is debt for one country is an asset for another country that is buying it. Obviously. No? Yeah, but you mentioned Argentina there, and of course there are countless countries in Africa. Isn't it merely that default, a procedure, a stage in the development of a decoupled country from that US system? And we haven't even mentioned the IMF. Argentina is doing a bit better now than it was uh, back in those days in the initial years mm -hmm. after the default. Similarly, isn't this all about BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, decoupling? And a default is just... Uh, on the way to it. I mean, I, I know China is a contributor to the IMF, I should say, but isn't it uh, merely a staging post? So think about this. You're, 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 even if it's China, China is a very intelligent and very long-term country. Mm -hmm. The idea that a country is going to default on the United States or on the Euro area and that it's but it's not going to do it on China. Makes no sense. Hmm? The, 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 the a default process is in itself the destruction of the confidence in the government by the by the markets. To not just the markets, but by anyone that wants to lend to that country. So if so if if I'm the Chinese government and I see a government that has defaulted eight times. I guarantee you that the Chinese, who are very, very bright, very intelligent, and very know what they're doing with their money, they're not going to lend to that country, certainly in, con in, in conditions that are going to be better than the ones that they were receiving before. Unless it's, it's a, unless it's a political default, arguably, and politics does have a mention if the debt was in the there United States. No just, one final, well, just one final <laughs> question. Who is going to own Ukraine, given Russia's saying it doesn't want Kiev? when this war, horrible war, uh, ends. Is the IMF, is the debt, I mean, I don't know whether the debt will be defaulted on. Clearly, uh, Ukraine is not the Ukrainian peoples at the end of this war, regardless of Russia uh, saying it doesn't want to take over Western Ukraine and Poland doesn't. Is it the International Monetary Fund and the Bretton Woods Institution? Who is it that owns Ukraine? Uh, these are unbelievable sums of money going uh, in to prop up that economy. Let alone the weapons. What a, what, a, what a good question. What a challenging one to respond. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a very long process of reconstruction that is going to require an incredible amount of money from different uh, different countries, and um, ultimately, it's going to be a question of whether that process happens like the uh, i don't know like like after the second world war with europe or similar but it's it's a very difficult one to answer i don't i don't know i certainly right now for me i don't see that uh, I, I don't see that any of the of the of the outcomes that we read in the press seem to be uh, the ones that will probably end up uh, happening, no, but it's certainly going to be the reconstruction, the entire reconstruction of a country, and that I wouldn't say that the IM, the IMF is going to own it, but certainly without the IMF, I don't see it happening. Professor Daniel Lacaye, thank you. Thank you so much.
And that's it for the show. We'll be back next Saturday with world-renowned energy markets expert Anas Alhaji. But until then, you can keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.